Welcome to Tiski Sour. We're going to be talking about the Glasgow Climate Pact. Will it manage to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees? And why the hell is everyone now blaming China and India? Two countries who do not have much, much responsibility for climate change at all, especially India. Um, they have now come out as, as the climate villains. I'm going to be asking an expert whether that narrative makes sense, if it really adds up. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good. How are you? What I've realised, Ash, is that I've got my AirPods in instead of my headpiece, which means I've got no idea what you're saying. So I'm going to sort that out very quickly. Why don't you throw back to Ash while I do that? I guess I'm hosting the show now. Welcome to Tisky Sour. I am Michael Walker. And do we have a hell of a show for you tonight? We have got Asad Rahman talking about the Glasgow Climate Agreement. We will also be talking about Jacob Rees' mog and his love of cheap loans. Uh, we'll be talking about why Keir Starmer uh, keeps proving himself as someone who perhaps isn't to be trusted as a man of his word. And maybe, just maybe, we will be talking about why Michael Walker needs to get on his A game when it comes to having the right headphones. Have you switched over yet? I have no idea what you said, but I am sure it is incredibly insightful. <laughs> and I can't wait to actually hear what you have to say for the rest of the show. The Glasgow Climate Pact was signed on Saturday evening at COP26, 24 hours after the conference was due to close. It came after some dramatic negotiations between the lead diplomats for the US, EU, China and India on the conference floor. The deal shortens the period in which countries will be asked to increase their carbon cutting ambitions. That will now happen next year instead of in 2025. It also commits to doubling finance for developing countries to adapt to climate change. But the most talked about part of the deal concerned coal. That's because at the 11th hour, India's delegation demanded that a pledge to phase out unabated coal power was changed to a pledge to just phase it down. It was a change which would get the document over the line. And significantly, it was the first time coal appeared in such a document. However, many delegations expressed their disappointment at the watering down of the wording on the dirtiest of fossil fuels. This was the reaction of Franz Timmermans, the European Union's climate envoy. What was just read out to us is a further disappointment. Not because we want to be right, but because we know that the longer you take to get rid of coal, the more burden you put on a natural environment, but also the more burden you put on your economy because coal is simply not a smart economic proposition either. That's why we want to speed up the exit out of coal. The way in which the change was made, as well as the, the final wording, was particularly controversial. That's because it happened at the last minute. Other countries had been told negotiations were closed. That was a particular bugbear for less influential countries. This was Mexico's representative. We believe we have been sidelined in a non-transparent and non-inclusive process. At the stock take, we already compromised to what we perceived was an agreement by parties, even if we were unhappy with the text. But now we learn that there are even further changes that we were not being made aware. We all have remaining concerns, but we're told we could not reopen the text. Mexico, for example, believes the language on human rights should have been strengthened and are very, very disappointed that such demands were not heard, while others can still ask to water down our promises. 
was the representative from Mexico raising her concerns about the process. The most powerful intervention, though, came from Tina Stage. She's representative of the Marshall Islands. That could, of course, become uninhabitable if climate change exceeds 1.5 degrees. Here's what she said in response to that change on the wording on coal. On behalf of the Marshall Islands, I wish to read into the record our profound disappointment with the change in the language on coal from phase out to phase down. I ask that this be reflected in the report of this meeting. This commitment on coal had been a bright spot in this package. It was one of the things we were hoping to carry out of here and back home with pride. And it hurts deeply to see that bright spot dim. We accept this change with the greatest reluctance. We do so only, and I really want to stress, only, because there are critical elements of this package that people in my country need as a lifeline for their future. The key line there was that she accepted the deal with reluctance. What was clear from the room is that no one wanted to, to stand in the way of the final document at the end of the day or after those changes had, had been made, but they would have preferred it with, with some previous wordings. Um, finally, recommending participants to agree to that final document was Alok Sharma. He's the COP president. He was almost brought to tears. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologize for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. The sequence of events we've just shown you led many to hold India, along with China, as the climate villains standing in the way of real progress on tackling climate change. Speaking on Sunday, Alok Sharma said both countries would have to justify what happened on the conference floor to the world's most vulnerable. It's also an angle which was reflected in the UK press. This was the Sunday Times, the day after the deal was agreed. You can see that India and China fought COP deal to abandon coal. You can see who are the, who are the enemies of, of progress there. The Guardian this morning went with something similar. So frustration at India and China over watering down climate deal. However, you might ask whether it is fair to blame two countries with historically low emissions for runaway climate change. Is it instead that what we've seen this weekend is a sleight of hand by the West to get ourselves off the hook? I'm joined by Assad Raymond, a spokesperson for the COP26 Civil Society Coalition and the director of War on Want. Um, you were at COP26. I suppose your initial thoughts on that final document and also how you feel coming away from Glasgow looking at all of these headlines saying the real problem is India, the real problem is is China. So absolutely. And I was actually in the room when uh, Alex Sharma's crocodile tears fell down his face. Uh, I mean, first of all, the overall document is an absolute betrayal. It's an absolute betrayal of people. It's a betrayal of the science. The only people who will be celebrating this are big business, the fossil fuel industry, without a doubt. But the issue about India particularly, Having been in these negotiations for a very, very long time, I could write those press releases right at the beginning. It's literally insert global south country to blame. 
It was Bolivia at a time, then it was China, and then it was in India, then it was South Africa and back to India. Uh, when the reality is, actually what happened in Glasgow was that the richest countries, the US, the European Union, and the UK, blocked all progress. They didn't do their fair share on keeping limit on, on targets to limit uh, temperatures to below 1.5. They, again, un, uh, uh, didn't progress that unmet promise, the 100 billion, which we know is a, a drop in the ocean. They blocked any progress on loss and damage, the critical uh, demand by the, the global south, 80% of the world's population united saying, this is the outcome that we need. We're already seeing people's lives and livelihoods being devastated. Most of our countries are being overwhelmed, not just by the climate crisis, but the crisis of economic inequality, COVID, debt, and we urgently need help. And what rich countries said was, we refuse to allow that text to be in the, in the doc, final document. What we'll give you is basically a conversation about a helpline, a helpline with no help at the end. Uh, so really, the real villains in this in this piece are the rich developed countries. And the UK, uh, absolutely for holding and hosting one of the most inept and uh, inequitable uh, cops that I've ever been part of. I mean, we as civil society have literally been locked out of not just the venue, the negotiating rooms, and even its digital platform which was unable to function during the negotiation. So for a long time, the eyes and ears of the and the voice of the world weren't actually even being able to be part and parcel of these negotiations. Of course, if you're a rich billionaire or if you're one of the big business as that were lobbying there at the climate negotiations, you weren't having that problem. You were being having the red carpet rolled out to you. So uh, really the real blame, and it's amazing how much of this colonial mindset exists, both within, of course, our government, our government, but also within Western media. They didn't ask the real questions and they looked at what is really one of the side issues of the, in terms of the number of issues that the, that the rich developed countries had reneged on and picked this one particular issue. And even then, I have to say, the UK presidency played a blinder because we've seen previously agreed text have amendments been put into them when the United States have insisted and that full text be brought to the table. Here, Alex Sharma insisted that India make the amendment on the floor so that it would be blamed because people would take away the headline, India was blocking something on fossil fuels. The reality, of course, is, look, you know, for rich developed countries, coal is an aging infrastructure, right? Most of them are actually already transitioning out, obviously, some in a very brutal manner like the UK did in the 1980s with the, with the coal mining industry and the, and the deindustrialization that happened. But others have already nearly exited massively expanding oil and gas. Now, the International Energy Association has said clearly there can be no expansion of oil, gas or coal if we want to keep temperatures below 1.5. And what we saw was a targeting of coal. And the reason why we see a targeting of coal is because, of course, that's overwhelmingly situated in the global south. Not because that is a more polluting uh, fossil fuel. It's just because, you know, for India, for China, who are relatively new in terms of polluting, they have the lowest footprints compared to the richest countries, accumulative sort of emissions. For example, a citizen in the global north in the Americas is about... Uh, 1,750 in the UK, it's about 1,100, and China is about 197, and India is way down there at 61, but they have 800 million people who are locked into poverty. And what the India was saying was, look, 
I agree to end all fossil fuels, but let's do it equitably. All. We'll, we'll do oil, gas, and coal together. The rich countries, the UK, the US, EU said, absolutely not. We will not allow mention of oil and gas in there. And so they targeted coal. And what India was basically saying was, look, if you're not giving finance and technology, if you're not doing your fair share, then you're telling us who have so much of our population who don't have access to energy to immediately end our coal and subsidies on coal. That's just unfair. So I, of course, would like to have said phase out of all fossil fuels. But this fixation on this word of phase down coal, as if that's like the major thing that came out of the COP26, I think is a real sleight of hand, as you said. Let's focus on, on coal. And Fox, I want to jump to video three, um, because this is the India's climate envoy explaining his country's opposition to that phrasing on the, the phase out of coal. I want to see you know, to what extent that's, that's reflecting what Assad's saying and what else um, might be going on. So this is India's opposition to the original phrasing to phase out coal. Fossil fuels and their use have enabled parts of the world to attain high levels of wealth and well-being. The UNFCCC refers to mitigation of CSG emissions from all sources. UNFCCC is not directed to at any particular source. When we have taken economy by targets, targeting any particular sector is uncalled for. Every country will arrive at net zero as per its own national circumstances, strengths and weaknesses. Developing countries have a right to their fair share of the global carbon budget and are entitled to the responsible use of fossil fuels within this scope. There's two possible scenarios here as to India's refusal or India's opposition to, the, to this saying, let's, let's phase out coal and weakening it to say phase down. So one is they're saying, and that's what was really expressed in, in that part of that speech there, that you guys have used coal to develop. Why are you now specifying how we can and cannot develop? He's essentially saying, you know, we, we've already put forward our, our national, nationally determined contributions, which is we're going to be net, net zero by, by 2070. It's not your business what 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 fossil fuels we're using, especially when you've 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 got to develop by by using them, and so that would suggest they are planning to continue using coal because they they cannot see a way of developing without it. Another interpretation, though, is that you know ultimately India could be persuaded to move away from coal if the money was there. And what was happening in Glasgow this weekend was it was sort of you know a, a power play by India and China to say, look, you know, if, if you want us to rescue you guys by developing along a different route to that which you did and, and, and avoiding coal, you're going to have to cough up a hell of a lot of money and they are using leverage. And if money comes in 2022 at the COP in Egypt, then potentially you could have India's delegations coming up and saying, oh, actually, now you've made it financially viable for us. We are willing to move away from coal. Which one of those do you think is, is more likely? Are they genuinely committed to coal or is this a power play? Look, I don't think it's a case of any country, particularly in the global south, being generally committed to coal. It's just a reality. If you want to build your economy and using fossil fuels, and of course, that's what the modern capitalism has done, then you rely on the simplest and cheapest is coal. Gas and oil require technology and massive investment. And so for poorer countries, coal is always the cheapest option, right? You, actually, it's not very complicated as a process coal is widely available. And of course, uh, we have to remember India's coal addiction 
that development pathway came about because when the UK was uh, in control of India during the Raj, they they created the infrastructure for coal mining within India. So if we want any of these countries to leapfrog, the reality is you've got to give technology and finance, right? Because you cannot have half the world locked into energy poverty and saying, that's how we, you're going to stay. Because all of these governments in the global south are me met by their own citizens saying, why can't we have energy? Right? We see it, massive uses of energy in the global north. And of course, the global north consumes something like about 16 times the amount of energy that somebody in the global south does. So it becomes always comes down to this question of equity and justice and fair share and how you approach these climate negotiations. If you're approaching them in a spirit of saying, we've got a global problem. It's such a problem that we all need to work together. It's got to be solidarity and cooperation. We'll make technology and money available and we'll equitably do all of this. Then that's one approach. Instead, what rich countries have done basically is use the last 20 years of saying, okay, we know that with 18% of the population, we're responsible for 60% of all global emissions, but we don't want to take responsibility for that. Let's forget our past. Let's start again from now. And everybody does the same amount of effort. Doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you've got the wealth or if you don't have the wealth, or you need technologies, well, come to us and we'll sell them to you. And what better lesson for developing countries than how the UK and rich countries have responded in terms of the COVID pandemic? Here's a global problem. The UK Prime Minister said no one is safe until everyone is safe. And yet what have we seen? We've seen developing countries at 1% of, it, of vaccination and we've seen big pharmaceutical companies uh, saying we will sell you those vaccines. And we've seen rich countries hoard those vaccines and say, absolutely, we're going to protect the profits of our pharmaceutical companies. So the same thing is playing out around energy. How do you have an energy transition? Who pays for this energy transition? And who will profit from this energy transition? So quite rightly, lots of developing countries are saying, if you want us to move away from that, you do need to support us. And that is, of course, where the biggest obstacle in the negotiations comes about, that the richest countries simply don't want to take responsibility for causing this crisis. And can you see that being unblocked? If I was to, to be an optimist, I had an optimistic moment this weekend. I'm not saying I necessarily you know, hold, hold to it, which is that countries such as India and China have potentially realized that climate change gives them a lot of leverage. We in the West need them to move away from coal if we are to not have the catastrophic consequences of climate change. So they, they do potentially have a bargaining chip to say it, it is in your interest to pay us this money, to pay us essentially reparations, which is something that has been um, demanded at COP26 and wasn't really granted. Um, so that was on the, the loss and damage facility. Do you see a potential way forward there over the next 12 months? Because you could say, look, if all of us in the West say, look, all you have to do is, is offer up the cash. We're willing, to, we're willing to offer up that cash because we want to avoid catastrophic climate change. Just sign up to something like the, the loss and damage facility. Can you imagine that happening and that unblocking this, this whole deadlock, I suppose? First of all, unblocking the climate negotiations will not happen within our, our current economic structures and with, with our political leaders who are prioritizing, of course, their economic interests in the short term and national economic interests, right? It's just not possible within that. Moving the dial on that, of course, that's up to us and we can move our governments. But the reality is, is rich countries, yeah, we all know that breaching the 1.5 degree guardrail is, is going to tip us into, you know, runaway and catastrophic climate change. 
Overwhelmingly, those impacts are in the global south. Most policymakers in the global north sit and say, actually, you know what? We know we're going to hit by more floods. We're going to have these extreme weather impacts. Of course, they're not on the scale, the frequency as what happens on the global south, but we've got the capacity and resources to be able to deal with that. So over the summer, we all saw the floods, for example, that took place. Look at the difference. In Germany, a flood took place and the German government allocated 30 billion to respond to that flood. In Uganda, a flood takes place. And of course, the Ugandan government is unable to respond because it's already paying out huge amounts of money in debt repayments. It's locked into uh, uh, inequality. It's got, it's, it, countries are simply being overwhelmed. So India and China and the global south don't really have that leverage point of saying, you, we need to cut our emissions to save you. The problem is it's that the richest countries are still producing more emissions than the global south. We still overwhelmingly are responsible for the majority of emissions in the atmosphere. So we need to cut our emissions. And then we need to be saying to India and China, look, we're cutting our emissions and we take responsibility for this damage. Come along, move along. And of course, within India and within China and with all the global South countries, there are movements pushing their governments to have this just transition, fighting against their own governments and saying, you know, we don't want dirty development pathways. But we also don't want to just accept that our people stay in edge poverty. So you need both parts of this uh, jigsaw to move at the same time. You need us to make sure our governments do our fair share and put the money and technology on the table. And you need our movements in the global south pushing their government saying there is a different pathway than the one that is put in front of you. And of course, we're told that there is no other development pathway for poorer countries than dirty development paths, dirt, that dirty development. To move away from that, you fundamentally need to rethink our economies, right? You need to put well-being at the centre. You need to think about living in balance. And that really requires a, a restructuring of the global economy. Because for many countries in the global south, you know, fossil fuels are not just something that they use for themselves, but it's their biggest export commodity. So that's the, where their most of their resources come from. So if you suddenly turn off the tap, where will their resources come from? How will they be able to, you know, finance that transition? And when they look at what's put on the table, they realize that actually they've got empty promises on finance and technology from the richest countries. The final thing I want to mention is something I know you've seen because I found the story on your Twitter feed. And it is, I think, the, the most stark example I have seen of the two-faced nature of some of the, the Western countries when it comes to these climate negotiations. And as you say, they're focusing on coal because we have largely moved away from coal. They don't want to talk about oil and gas because we are still extracting oil and gas and relying on oil and gas. And we had one hell of an example of this this weekend. And that's because Biden, while talking a good talk in Glasgow, is about to begin the largest offshore oil and gas lease sale in US history. So the Huffington Post write, the Department of the Interior will offer up more than 80 million acres, an area larger than the state of New Mexico, of the Gulf of Mexico for drilling. It is bigger than any lease sale conducted under President Donald Trump's fossil fuel friendly administration and interior estimates will lead to the production of an additional 1.1 billion barrels of oil and 4.4 trillion cubic feet of natural gas over several decades. 
it is worth noting the Biden administration say this is happening against their will. It's because a Trump-appointed federal judge in Louisiana struck down an executive order pausing the lease of oil and, and gas fields on federal land. They're saying their hands are tied. But um, there are critics who say that there are a number of, of routes that the federal government could, could use to block this, which they don't want to because of the, the costs, political or otherwise. Assad, can I get your comments on, on that? But also, I suppose just the case of America, because COP26 presumably went a lot better because Joe Biden was there than Donald Trump was. But we do have a state where one party of government just denies climate change. So, so where would we be if in free COP's time we have another Donald Trump and they are, you know, climate deniers and they want to get America back on coal? I have to say, having been in the climate negotiations and seeing George Bush, uh, Obama, President Obama, Donald Trump, and now President Biden, Within the climate negotiations, nothing really changes, irrespective of whoever the, the, prime, uh, the president of the United States is. I think it's very telling that the United States always says, you know, the one thing that's not up for negotiation is the American way of life. They are absolutely continuing the same process, which has been they've dismantled the climate architecture. So some people might wonder why it is, you know, if this was meant to be a one and a half degree cop, the cop that was kept us below 1.5, why we're uh, go leaving Glasgow, heading towards 2.7 degrees warming, at least, if not more. It's because the United States insisted on a dismantling of any legally binding targets because they didn't want to basically do their fair share. And to their eternal shame, I have to say, a lot of Western NGOs backed that in, a, in an idea that, you know, the whole goal was if you captured China, as well as America and the European Union, everything would be all right. And that justice and fairness was a nice thing, but it wasn't the most important thing. And we've always argued without fairness, you're never going to convince people to do their fair bit, their fair share, their fair share. So in the Paris Agreement, it was all pledges. You pledge what you think you want to do. And the Americans are not doing their fair share, like the UK is not doing its fair share. We've done research saying that shows that if the UK, as the sixth biggest historical polluter in the world, did its fair share of effort, we'd be at minus 200% by 2030. Similarly, the United States would be close to minus 200% by 2030 in real reduction targets, not in this fancy, fantasy world of net zero, where you can continue to pollute and sometime in the future you'll invent some technologies that will suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. Of course, one, incredibly risky. Uh, secondly, it opens the doors to the maddest kind of technologies that have not been proven so far. So none of us would, of course, accept public policy being made on such a gamble. And that's exactly what we're doing with people's lives and our planet. Then the United States, frankly, if we wanted a real outcome of the COP, I'd say limit the Americans' involvement. They've been the most disruptive country within the climate negotiations. They've weakened the negotiations time and time again. That issue that you mentioned, for example, on loss and damage, right, which is a fundamental issue now because we've seen, you know, we all can see what the devastation is happening all around the world. It's the United States who led the fight and said, we will not accept that. We're not going to accept any mention of liability. When on the fossil fuels, on India's proposal that we phase out all fossil fuels, it was the United States who led that. And of course, backed by Australia, the UK, the European Union, all of the sort of rich global north countries, because the United States, of course, you know, allies a lot with these particular countries. So they're a very, very destructive force. And no mind of like sound bites by President Biden or by previous 
of President Obama changed the fact that actually American policy towards the climate negotiations and its relentless drive to expand its fossil fuel industry hasn't really changed. And of course, we could say the same with the UK government. The fact that just days before the COP started, our budget and our chancellors announced an increase in our expansion of domestic aviation. We have 40 licenses for more North Sea oil and gas explorations in the pipeline. We're just, even ridiculously, we have a new coal mine in the UK. Um, all policies that go diametrically in opposite to this new stated found commitment to tackling the climate emergency that we hear from our political leaders. All that they're doing at the moment is they're talking tough on climate, but they're not putting the plans and policies in place that we need. Asad Raymond, thank you so much for joining us this evening and for your insight after what I imagine must have been an incredibly taxing two weeks in Glasgow. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry I'm not so coherent because I, it literally has been like two, three hours sleep for, uh, for, for over two, two, uh, two weeks. But uh, always a pleasure to join you, Michael. Let's go straight on to our second story. Jacob Rees-Mogg may have breached parliamentary rules by not declaring £6 million in personal loans from his Cayman Island-linked company. That's all according to the Mail on Sunday, who this weekend detailed how Rees-Mogg borrowed up to £2.94 million a year in director's loans from his firm Saliston Limited. The loans, which were granted between 2018 and 2020, weren't declared in Rees-Mogg's register of interests. Rees-Mogg maintains he was not required to declare the loans as they didn't represent any outside income. They were just loans. But the mail on Sunday suggests his argument might not stack up. So they report, Although it does not explicitly cover directors' loans, the MP's Code of Conduct requires directors to declare taxable expenses, allowances and benefits. In the MP's Register of Interest, Mr Rees-Mogg disclosed himself as an unremunerated director and shareholder of the firm, but did not say he had taken out the loans. By using directors' loans, classed by the government as a taxable benefit, he was able to borrow the large sum at very low interest rates. A source in the Commons Sleaze Watchdog said the loan should absolutely have been declared in the Register of Interests, adding, the whole point of registration is the public should be able to know what is governing your decision-making and the actions you take. The nub of the story here, Rees-Mogg managed to borrow these loans from the company, which he used to purchase a house at a lower interest rate than one would have been able to get on the market. He got it for essentially 0.8%. That's what it all worked out as it was, in other words. A benefit, and it was a benefit that went undeclared. Ash Rees-Mogg is the first cabinet member to be properly caught up in the fallout from the Owen Patterson affair. I suppose we should say other than Boris Johnson. Could this be significant? It could be, particularly if Catherine Stone, after Kwasi Kwarteng sent for her and missed, is feeling like she wants to pay particular attention to Boris Johnson and his front benches as a show of her strength and independence. So this could be something which lands him in trouble, even though he insists that because of this loophole, everything that he did was above board. I think the story has got a lot of shades of the Peter Mandelson, Peter Mandelson sorry, scandal in 1998, where he was shamed into resigning because of an undeclared loan from an associate of I think it was around £370,000, which allowed him to buy a very swanky house in Notting Hill. A little bit of trivia. Do you know who it was who helped break that story? I don't. Go on. Enlighten me. Seamus Mill. Oh, was it? Mm. It was. 
So, so there might be some beef of long standing there. But my point is that this kind of has shades of of that particular scandal. It's just whether the fact that there is this uh, loophole, whether that's enough to insulate him from either a kind of critical mass of public outcry or indeed an investigation by the Standards Committee uh, and Commissioner Catherine Stone. Let's talk about the nature of of this company, because whilst I think we all know, you know, Rees Mogg is is a you know a proper ruling class bastard, to put it, you know, in uh, the terms which might come most naturally, his business affairs are pretty off. They make me judge him. The firm which made the loan was Salaston Limited. It had Rees Mogg as its director until he joined the cabinet in 2019. Rees-Mogg still retains 100% shareholding in it and his wife remains a director. You say, I've stepped back because I'm joining the cabinet, but my wife's still a director and I still own the whole thing. So of that company, the Mail report, Saliston Limited has previously been described as a holding company by Mr. Rees-Mogg. It has £8 million in property assets, understood to include a Mayfair house and nearly £1 million in other investments. In 2018, it took out a £2.87 million bank loan. According to its accounts, the same year it lent Mr. Rees-Mogg £2.9 million. It has a controlling stake in Somerset Capital Management LLP, the parent firm of Somerset Capital Management Limited in the Cayman Islands. On that Cayman's question, which is, I presume, of, of particular interest to many people, Jacob Rees-Mogg said, I have no managerial responsibility for Somerset Capital Management. However, I know that the Cayman company purely provides a fund for non-UK investors, but any and all money it makes returns to Somerset Capital Management in the UK where it pays full taxes. One might ask, why do non-UK citizens need to invest via the Cayman Islands? He said, oh, it's not me that invests. That's, that's for non-UK citizens. Who are these non-UK citizens? Why do they want to invest via a country which is infamously secretive and is willing to hide your identity? Makes it seem like you might have some unsavory clients. Obviously, I, I don't know. But these events raise questions, don't they? What do you think it says about our political class that cabinet members think it's perfectly acceptable to have holding companies with branches in the Cayman Islands? I think that it shows that an awful lot of this Brexit populism, where you have people like Jacob Rees-Mogg or indeed Boris Johnson or you know, former Brexit Party chairman Richard Tice reinventing themselves as these tribunes of the people, real vox populi, all the while concealing the fact that they are making use of business and tax arrangements, which are only available to the very, very wealthy. So part of this is that it's deliberately confusing and opaque. Even in reading out that story, Michael, you've got to distinguish between the parent company and this other company, which is in the Cayman Islands, how the returns might be working, how this loan, which is taken out by the company, then sort of happens simultaneously with another loan going to Jacob Rees-Mogg. If, if you're somebody who is unfamiliar with the tax arrangements of multinational corporations or high net worth individuals who are able to invest across borders, it's really confusing. And you almost don't know what's wrong with it because it's so opaque. But ultimately what this is, is using the fact that there is a two-tier 
system of justice, particularly when it comes to tax, where if you're an ordinary worker, your taxes will be subject to scrutiny by HMRC. You can, of course, be audited. You can be sanctioned. You can be fined, even if you make a mistake or simply you didn't know some of the rules. Whereas if you're somebody who has a team of financial advisors, lawyers, accountants, you're able to exploit these loopholes and arrange your money in a way which is fundamentally unfair and means that tax is you know, disproportionately paid in these low tax jurisdictions. And also your finances are kept in jurisdictions, jurisdictions where there's an awful lot of secrecy and opacity surrounding banking as a way of ducking your democratic and your financial obligations to the state. I think it's dreadful that ministers are able to exploit it, but Jacob Rees-Mogg is not the first, and I'm sure that without a change of the rules, he won't be the last. This is what the rules are designed to facilitate. So we kind of, I think, do a disservice to the story by talk, by you know framing it in terms of loopholes. I know that's a word I've been using a lot. They're not really loopholes so much as gates, right? Kind of, you know, come hither holes in the wall which should exist between politicians and corruption yeah i mean i I suppose there's lots of comments in the youtube clip saying call it what it is corruption i I think the issue here is that there isn't as far as i know evidence that jacob Rees-Mogg has tried to shift policy to benefit his own investments which would be the more obvious definition of corruption but having all of these interests including on the cayman islands to me, just raises suspicions. Um, so that's, I suppose, that, that, that's a distinction I think it might be worth making. Let's move on, and we're going to remain on Jacob Rees-Mogg. Revelations that Jacob Rees-Mogg failed to declare a £6 million loan from his Cayman Islands-linked company confirms the impression that he cares more about money than he does public service. He is, after all, one of Britain's richest MPs, and according to Tatler magazine, Rees-Mogg and his wife are worth 100 to £150 million. We also know Rees-Mogg's love of money goes way, way back. This is a 12-year-old Rees-Mogg speaking to a French television crew. I love money. Always have done. Why? Because you need money. Um, and with money, you can make more money. And if you've got money... You can buy things, buy things that you want. I could buy this Rolls Royce, something like that. Lovely. Jacob, how did you get involved in all that? Um, well, five years ago, um, I inherited £50 from a distant cousin. Um, and my father invested this in GEC for me. And I became interested because I wanted to know what my money was doing. And then later on, I think two years later, he bought me some more shares um, for my birthday. And I've continued buying and selling shares at um, regular intervals since then. And why do you think we've got such um, large cash reserves? Well, basically, it's a question of the fact they sell their assets and uh, use them to acquire more, more viable assets. A question of purchase and repurchase. Yeah, I see. Um, well, can I buy a hundred, please? is the basic problem with British politics that kids like that end up in the cabinet. I'm horrified by what I just saw. Like, I don't know if 
that child, that 12-year-old with a really warped sense of values is a product of too much or not enough bullying. <laughs> I don't I don't know I don't know what I don't know what the cause is. Um I mean there's a few things in it. One is that young Tories are often really weird, you know, and I think there's something about cutting against the grain of, you know, lots of people in your own generation that makes them quite weird. There is also I think something about you know, young people at a time which should be, you know, defined by play, creativity, imagination, you know, shilling for big business and capital. I think it's quite a stultifying and an atrophying uh, condition for, for, you know, young people to have. And I think that that's why, you know, young Tories are almost always incredibly weird and a little bit, you know, creepy i think there's also something here about the character of jacob rees mogg and the fact that he's always been i think a very calculating figure and really quite concerned with the character that he's projecting i think even at that early age of 12 years old you can see that he's got the little love maggie badge you know he's on the television you know discussing with a financial advisor uh, where he wants to buy shares again it's about the cultivation of a particular image and it's something that throughout his career Jacob Rees-Mogg has continued to do so taking his nanny out with him as he's canvassing in a general election this kind of very affected uh, sense of being a haunted Victorian child's marionette that's not a natural personality that's one which is very deliberately put together because he thinks it creates an overall impression the same way that boris johnson is always playing a character the character of boris johnson is something which sticks in the memory um but even the fact that he's talking about money in this way at 12 years old kind of highlights the artificiality of this, you know, aristocratic persona that he likes to project now. Because what do we know about the aristocracy, Michael? If we've watched Downton Abbey, they don't talk about money like that, darling. It's very uncouth and very tacky. It's a bit nouveau riche and a bit arrovise to be so concerned with how your shares are doing. Um, so I think that, you know, yes, politics is bad because it kind of lets these like you know, kind of warped funhouse mirror images of humanity into it to then govern the country. But I think it also points to the fundamental inauthenticity, artificiality and fraud nature that is the Jacob Rees-Mogg persona. We've got a, a very kind super chat from Jovian, 50 quid. He is the product of the private school system reproducing class division and privilege. It is horrible to see but a valuable lesson. I have more valuable lessons that are horrible to see because let's watch a little bit more of that clip. What do you think you'll be when you be a grown-up? What kind of work will you do? Well, when I'm 30, I'd like to be the managing director of GEC. And um, hopefully by the time I'm 70, when I'm 70, um, I'd love to become prime minister. Why? Why? Because um, at that age you can have made all your millions or billions and you've got plenty of money and you'll have time to spend on politics. 
Yes, well, I saw in um, a newspaper, I think it was the Financial Times, that they were thinking of introducing a permanent tax oh, on the yes. banks, yes. especially for the banks, like yes. they've got on oil companies. Do you intend to get married and to have children? Um, no, I intend to stay a bachelor, um, because I don't want to get divorced and have the wife take all my money, um, and that seems to be happening so often nowadays that um, I won't take the risk. That's quite, that one's quite sad, isn't it? If you're 12 and you you feel you'll never get married because the divorce will be too expensive. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How <laughs> fucked up must his experience of parenting been? That last comment that uh, you read out about the impact of the private school system, I do think that it is completely barbarous. Michael, we've talked about this a lot. I think that the private school system is a form of institutionalized child abuse because when children are separated from their parents at those really formative ages, whether that's four years old or 11 years old, you know, and they're sent to these abuse factories, all right? We know that private schools, particularly boarding schools, are riven top to bottom with bullying, intimidation, physical violence, and in some cases, unfortunately, sexual violence as well. You know, when that happens to children in the care system, we go, oh my God, that's really bad. That must be really traumatizing for the child. But when that happens to children because they've been sent to boarding school, as a society, we look at that and we go, oh, that parent made the best possible choice to their child. No, you didn't. You ripped them away from you. The, the you know, cocooning influence of your love and your support and your unconditional presence to send them away to be brutalized so that they can then become a member of the ruling class. And so you see this child, you know, in the back of this chauffeur driven car or behind this huge desk talking about money. And I want to make lots of money and I don't want to get married in case it puts my money at risk. And you do wonder what are the messages that you're getting from your parents? And in fact, where where are your parents? How are they expressing love to you? Why do you look so lonely? So, you know, yes, if I'd met that kid at the age of 12 years old, I probably would have given him a purple nurple. But that doesn't detract from the fact that it is so sad to see a child trapped in this gilded prison of money and privilege and looking so lonely and so loveless. He did get married in the end. You know, maybe that's maybe it's kind of romantic that he didn't think he wanted to get married because they'd steal his money. And then he met a woman who he trusted, who actually, actually his wife is incredibly rich. That's probably what's going on here. She's, she's got loads and loads of inherited wealth. And he's a very strict Catholic. He's a very strict Catholic. So no contraceptives, no divorces which is really fine if that's your beliefs. But if you marry a really rich woman and you also say, look, love, no divorces, that is a level of security, <laughs> which, you know, most people uh, don't have when they're entering into the great adventure of matrimony. Well, he did get married and hopefully he won't become prime minister so that his, his two plans as a freaky little child will not come true. Um, let's go on to our next story. Labour have rightly made a big deal out of Geoffrey Cox's side job in the British Virgin Islands, and the sleaze allegations seem to have damaged the Tories in the polls. However, in fanning the flames of the outrage, Labour do face some risks. 
in particular because one of their own has, like Geoffrey Cox, received a second income from work in the British Virgin Islands. The Sunday Times report that Lord Faulkner, who is Labour's shadow attorney general and a close ally of Starmer, has a second job as a partner at an international law firm based in Los Angeles. In the past year, Faulkner has made money representing a gold and copper mining company in the British Virgin Islands. Of course, as a member of the Lords, unlike Geoffrey Cox, Falconer cannot be accused of abandoning constituents. And unlike Cox, he didn't actually travel to the British Virgin Islands. He instead made representations over Zoom. Nonetheless, details of the job don't show Falconer in a particularly positive light. The Times report that according to the website of the firm, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, Falconer, 69, specialises in complex commercial litigation and arbitration. He is qualified to practice in the British Virgin Islands. In this role, Falconer has represented a mining consortium in a $7 billion dispute over mineral extraction rights, which is being heard at the Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court since last year. His client is Teffian Copper, a joint venture between a Canadian gold mining firm and a Chilean minerals group. The consortium argues that Pakistan has unlawfully restricted its access to Reiko Dik, one of the world's largest untapped gold and copper reserves in Balochistan, a southwestern province. In response, it secured an order to freeze assets held by the Pakistani state in the British Virgin Islands. Pakistan, in turn, has accused Tefian of corruption, allegations it denies, and recently had the assets unfrozen. Now, it is important to stress, when it comes to the Sleaze scandal, it is not one which affects both parties completely equally. When it comes to MPs who have consultancies outside of their jobs as MPs, there are 30 Tories compared to only one Labour MP. But at the same time, stories like this don't look amazing. And you would have thought that, Keir Starmer, you want to make a big deal out of honesty in politics, you would make sure that no one in your shadow cabinet was working in the British Virgin Islands. Ash, how, how worried um, do you think Keir Starmer will be about this story pertaining to, to Lord Faulkner? Well, I think that what this story does is that it takes away any sort of moral authority from Keir Starmer when he is talking about second jobs, particularly if he's saying that backbenchers or indeed ministers uh, shouldn't have consultancies or second jobs that take up a lot of time because it means that it detracts from their work either in government or their dedication to their constituents. So I think that it is one of those things which is just like a complete, it's, it's an unnecessary self-inflicted wound. I should also say that the job of an attorney general or a shadow attorney general in Lord Falconer's case is to give legal advice to a cabinet or shadow cabinet to make sure that any policies that they are enacting, any courses of action that they're pursuing or indeed would be pursuing if they were in government are lawful. It's about advising would-be prime ministers or actually actual prime ministers about the lawfulness of what it is that they're trying to do. And that should take up an awful lot of your time, particularly if you are a government in opposition and you're a Labour Party and you're saying, OK, we, we want to be ambitious. The job at the next general election is to present something ambitious to the country where we can really you know, show people what difference a Labour government would make to how this country is run. So advising and shaping that by you know, providing much needed legal advice should be taking 
so much of your time that you can't effectively uh, represent a foreign firm in a, a court case that's taking place in a tax haven. That's just my opinion. I mean, the main thing for me, this is a dispute between a mining company and a elected government in the global south. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily think you're on the side of justice in that battle. Um, let's look at another aspect of this story, because one reason Keir Starmer might be soft on second jobs is that he had to be blocked from taking one on when he was in Corbyn's shadow cabinet. This sequence of events is something Corbyn confirmed on LBC this weekend. There's a story uh, in the papers saying that when you were leader of the Labour Party, you advised Keir Starmer, who's now the leader, not to take a lucrative second job with the law firm Mishkondorea in the summer of 2017. Um, is that what actually happened? What I said was that, uh, and I said this from the very beginning of when I was elected leader, that uh, nobody who was in a front bench position uh, appointed by me would be allowed to take a second job of any sort. They had to concentrate fully on obviously their work of being constituency MPs, but also of their front bench position. I made that very clear to everybody, including him. And, and because he's saying that, that there was no such request made, apparently. It was an absolutely clear request and decision made, and indeed it was confirmed in writing to every member of the Shadow Cabinet. That account from Corbyn had, had been denied by Starmer. His spokesman told The Guardian on the weekend that Keir had already said no to the offer from Michon de Rea before the leader's office were even aware of it. So he's saying, yeah, I didn't take the job, but it had nothing to do with Corbyn telling me not to take it. He did that of his own volition. He rejected the job of his own volition. However, Alex Nunns, who worked for Corbyn at the time, has produced evidence that contradicts Starmer's account. So he tweeted, here are the receipts. At 8am 24th of July, Starmer's office wanted to ride the controversy out, asking Corbyn's team to say the job was a limited role and discussions were ongoing. He doesn't want to say anything new, they said. Corbyn's office replied that wasn't acceptable. Now we can go to the screenshots in question. So you can see here first a message. Alex has blocked out the, the precise name. Hi, this is from Lotto, so that's leader of the opposition's office. Can you give me a call as soon as possible? And then a follow-up, any news, please. And then they share an article about Keir Starmer's plan to join Michon de Rea as legal advisor. And then someone who works for Keir, we presume, says, Keir's going to call me in half an hour. I won't have anything before that. Um, then the person who works in Lotto, so Corbyn's office, says the Times has written it up. Any word, story gathering legs. And the person who we presume works for Starmer says, what's your email? The Lotto person says, we really need more information than what you've sent. That's nothing new. And then Starmer's person says he doesn't want to say anything new, just clarifying that it's a limited role a few hours a month. So you can see that Starmer's spokesperson told The Guardian that Keir Starmer changed his mind or turned down this job before anyone in Corbyn's office even knew. And this is concrete, definitive evidence that people in Corbyn's office did know before he rejected the job. And it looks as if Keir Starmer was keen to take on that job. We've also got an email. Um, Alex Nunn shared an email from Michon de Rea. And we assume this is to the leader of the opposition's office or to, uh, to someone high up in the Labour Party. Hi, Keir has asked that you just give the people below Give people the below information and send it back to Michon. 
This is the statement from Mishon Dereya. We are in discussions with Keir Starmer about reappointing him as an advisor to the Mishon Academy. His wide experience and previous association with the firm would enable him to play a key and a unique role in shaping the work of the Academy, which leads new thinking and develops the potential of everyone in the firm. They write, the proposal is for a limited role for a few hours a month for inquiries. Please contact. contact. And then, no, that's, that's blocked out. And this is from the Director of External Affairs at Michon Urea. Now, again, it's worth noting what Keir Starmer is, is accused of here, nearly taking a job as a consultant to a training academy. It's slightly different to, to other consultancy roles in that I, I can't really see how you know, giving advice to a training academy would give you serious conflicts of interest. But his spokesperson did tell an obvious porky here. Ash, as I say, this, this second job that he almost got in a law academy, I, I think it's misjudged. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. But then lying about it afterwards is a bit, come on, you know, it's a bit suspect, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing which I think is really wrong isn't that at one point when he was in the shadow cabinet, he considered taking a second job and Corbyn said no. It's the fact that now he feels the need to mislead the public about it because he doesn't trust his own ability to say, you know what, back then I did consider it. Now being leader of the Labour Party, knowing what it takes to lead a political party, having these expectations of my own shadow cabinet, that's not something which I would stand by anymore. Right. I think that it's something which you can talk about in terms of uh, learning and growth, even just saying, look, that was a while ago. My thinking has changed. It's developed. You know, that's human. That's fine. And it reminds me a little bit of something else which happened fairly recently, which was um, Angela Rayner uh, in an interview saying that, you know, Keir Starmer will always do the greenest thing. So he doesn't take domestic flights. Well, actually, I remember him taking a domestic flight to Edinburgh and, you know, just sort of brushing off the criticism that was coming from people within his own party who say, like, look, you know, domestic flights are one of the easiest things to get rid of if we're serious about decarbonizing. Um, again, rather than sort of being able to tell a story of growth or of change, there is an instinct, I think, within this leadership to mislead, to tell lies, to try and erase very recent history. Now, while the individual content of that lie might not matter very much, because like you said, this is fairly low impact in terms of scandal, instead of taking a job, didn't take a job. Um, you know, private jet, I think maybe a little bit more damaging. What it adds up to is a sense of, well, here's this guy who is calling Boris Johnson a liar, and yet we can't trust a word that he says about his own past, or we can't even trust him to uh, keep the promises that he makes to his own party. So why should we put our faith in him? So again, this is one of those things which is a completely self-inflicted wound. And if he did have the integrity that he you know, advertised himself uh, as having in that leadership election, he would just own up to it and move on. I think that lots of people would have respect for that. I certainly would have respect for that. Um, or is this a tendency to lie, I think is more damaging. So Labour, less corrupt than the Tories, still led by a liar. Is that a fair summary? I mean, yeah. Does that do it for you? Does that make yeah. you kind of, you know, want to dance a jig into the voting booth? Let's save that for a general election. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's been a pleasure as always. I'm, I apologize that I couldn't hear what you were saying at the beginning of the show. 
Yeah, I was just slandering you to the viewers, um, spilling your secrets, all that kind of thing. I probably deserved it. Thank you, everyone, for your super chats tonight. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.